pleasure to be here with you. Um, again, it's um, just such a, a remarkable thing after two years of um, lockdowns to be able to see us gathered here on an Easter. Um, again, it is a true blessing and, a, and a, yeah, just a joy to be here with you as we experience this. So I want to do something that is um, maybe a little bit different from what you hear on an Easter. I mean, I know that sometimes as you go into these series that, you know, you go through these times where it's like, you know, the reality of the, the resurrection and, you know, for those who go on YouTube all of a sudden, if you're in that Christian circle, you see all this proof of the resurrection and did Jesus really rise and all that kind of stuff come up. But I don't want to delve there today, as good as that is, to delve at the historical proof that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. What I want to do is maybe focus, linking us a little bit to what we've been doing in Revelation and then exploring that whole idea of what does it mean that Jesus has resurrected and kind of like leaving it out there and not necessarily understanding what that means for me. So I want to take us um, somewhere different, but yet not off theme, and that is in Romans 6. I want to take a short excerpt from verses 1 to 14 and then expound upon what I think um, the truths that it helps us understand and hopefully raises us and our own expectations about what Resurrection Sunday means for us as believers. So forgive us because we're in the middle of Paul making obviously a lengthy argument about what salvation is, but um, needless to say, we are still going to be captured on a point which I think is quite pertinent. So let me read and then I will pray and then we'll expound upon what I believe um, Paul is teaching us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he, we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments of un for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are so thankful for your words um, today. Lord, we're thankful because it anchors us, dear Lord God, into the fact that you have indeed rose. Lord, we have lived some 2,000 years later, and Lord, we, have, we rely upon your testimony. So many people today, are, are, are even who come under the banner, quote-unquote, of Christianity, who are prepared to dash away this Bible, dash away this witness, um, consider it unreliable. Consider that the, the modern experiences trump that which has been written so long ago, Lord. But yet, it is by your word, dear Father, and the word of your witnesses that, Lord, we have our living faith today and we're anchored to that which began, Lord God, even before, the end of, before, the, before there was a time. But yet, Lord, also to history and what happened in there for our benefit. So, Lord, we're not those, dear Lord God, who are so hasty to dash away... The, the currency that your, way, your word has for us. But Lord, as we dig deep, dig into our own hearts, dear Lord God, help us, dear Lord, to connect with your word and its truth. And may it, Lord God, make us alive to, your, to what you are actually have done for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, by way of introduction, before we kind of break down a text... The now and the not yet, with regards to the, to the trajectory of the resurrection. Now, we are familiar with this term because obviously we go, well, we believe that in some respects, the kingdom of God has already come and is already present in the lives of believers. But yet we also know that it's not fully manifest in the sense that we would expect it to kind of live out to all the expectations that the word gives us. But yet that tension can easily delude us into thinking that, well, maybe I'll lean more to one truth than the other and then ultimately we end up in the muddle, which is ultimately the, the issues with the church at hand. We tend to kind of want to break the tension and live one way as opposed to another. But the resurrection in particular is important for us. Because there is a now and a not yet aspect to it as well. Well, what am I talking about? Well, the resurrection can best be defined as a, a significant historical event. It happened some point in the past. And to that extent, we are here to get together as a church because of that event. And we are acknowledging it even now when we say he is risen indeed. But beyond that, we also realize that the resurrection is an important eschatological event, meaning relating to the end of the world as well, that ultimately Christ's resurrection means that we also will resurrect with him on the last days. And to some extent, it fills the expectation and the hope of the believer with the fact that we have something also to look forward to. We will see our other brothers and sisters, again, in that sense, we, when we go to funerals for believers, 
we live with the hope and expectation that we shall see them again. And so in that sense, it becomes this future hope as well. So with regards to the resurrection, both the past and the future tend to be more in focus. <clears throat> but there are implications, as I've just read from Romans 6, about how the resurrection affects us now, in our current lives. Let me maybe give you a little illustration that kind of gives you this understanding of what it is that's going on in the text. You know, so imagine today... I know you're good believers, but let's just imagine you're holding a winning lottery ticket. Amen, <laughs> Amen indeed. Now, we're not just talking about a, a winning lottery ticket that you're just holding and you hope that it's the same numbers. It's, a, it's confirmed. You've called up and they've confirmed you have a winning lottery ticket. And so, there's a... There's an aspect in your life where even without having that money in your account, you reckon your poverty is over. You don't window shop the same way you window shopped before. Now you're walking with a certainty that, well, let's see how, you know, when I pay my bills, you know, our normal window shop, let's see how it works out the end and obviously as we see things are going up so we know that all that window shopping is going right out the window <laughs> I need to drive to work I need to get here and there I need to buy food I ain't got no time for it. but do you get the point the confirmation because we I guess we entrust integrity of the lottery as a a legitimate foundation and we know that everybody around you will treat you differently as well as a result of it because they also acknowledge your legitimacy but there is a real sense in which without that money even being in your account you consider yourselves I am no longer poverty stricken I am rich that's a taste of the now and the not yet that the time that elapses between that money hitting your account and you having acknowledged the fact that you are indeed a winner really matters little in the equation of what your future looks like. And as it was in your current sense, it changes everything you do. Even down, as I said, your window shopping. There is now a real expectation. There is a now sense where you got lifted above that and obviously everyone else treats you differently too. If we are honest, we will not only think the same way about our current problems, especially with relation to money, where we think of holding that winning ticket, you will also be able to say with confidence that all debts will be paid in due time. But what I want to enjoy, draw your attention to is how our attitude and behaviour will change. In relation to this potential money, our status will be different. Either forever or, as in relation to a lottery ticket, for a lifetime. 
The resurrection was not just a past historical event that vindicated Christ of his accusers. And he's not just an eschatological, eschatological hope, meaning an end time hope, pointing to the future when all believers will receive a glorified body. But there's also a whole new sphere of reality in which we are currently to walk. Because he is risen, my life definitely has been changed. If I receive his death for mine. Following on from our series in Revelation... My understanding of Jesus' resurrection and ascension is that it ushers in the kingdom age. Really does usher in the kingdom age. This implies that believers already benefit from Christ's finished work, which I assume, as Romans 6 points out, that freedom from slavery to sin is one of the benefits. This also implies that unbelievers are already also experiencing the wrath of God. Again, as Romans 1 alludes to, that they are already, the wrath of God is already revealed. And so, what are we to take? They are experiencing the wrath of God in that sense that they take upon themselves the doctrines of demons and suffer the consequences of their sinful acts. So there's a kind of a truth to that saying where, to some extent, where you are right now is either heaven or hell. There is a kind of truth to that. And to some extent, what I believe that means is that when the end of the age comes, we continue in that which the trajectory are already on. It's not like something suddenly shifts and all of a sudden now everything is different. It means that we feel that gentle slope into where we are going. So looking at the text, what does it teach us? Well, as I said, Revelation, I believe, tells us that the ascension, the resurrection ascension of Jesus ushers in a new age. And it is the beginning of the kingdom of God. Even, to some extent, a millennial kingdom, we might say. A kingdom that, where through his church, we are already ruling and reigning with him. Spiritually, as witnessed in the heavenly realm, and physically, as we gather together, even today, as the church. This is the kingdom of God. But first, I, don't, I, I need to kind of stress what Romans 1, Romans 6 is not saying. Always good to kind of throw out some bad ideas before we kind of say, well, this is what it really is saying. It's not saying that Christ's resurrection mystically links up with our baptism and causes us to inherit all the benefits of being in the actual kingdom of Christ as revealed in the last book of the Bible. It's not saying that. 
that our baptism all of a sudden now has made something come fully realised, which to some extent is not true. This will cause us to fall into the trap of what we see in the book of Corinthians and I believe today in the modern prosperity gospel, which is an over-realised eschatology where all of a sudden it's like, yes, I believe I'm a king's kid. I can inherit everything that God has. I can name it, I can claim it. The dominion that Adam had that now goes to Christ, I've got that now. I can move mountains if I so declare it. And to some extent, we are living in that mentality that there is nothing else really to expect. Or as some of these guys will say, your best life now. Which there's an aspect of that saying is actually true. Because we believe that we are living the best we can now until heaven comes. But not the best life now as opposed to regards to any other life we could possibly have after death. But genuinely, the best life now, but leading on into the kingdom, is something I can agree with. However, it is safe to say that Paul sees a corresponding truth in our becoming a Christian and accepting Christ's death as, 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 as having been justified from our sins in the past, Christ's resurrection from the dead also symbolises the deadness of our previous life. So Paul makes that connection, as you see in those first four verses, that if we believe that we are currently justified in Christ because of Christ's death, he says we also need to make that connection with his resurrection and consider ourselves no longer that same person we were before. We have been raised with him into a newness of life. You see how he makes that connection? How important that is for us? Let me illustrate this. Again, <laughs> we're familiar with in movies and novels and even actually in real life where people fake their deaths. And they fake their deaths in order to avoid all the implications that have come with the way that they've lived their life previously. And so when you die, as it were, your pursuance no longer pursue you. If you have an issue with, I don't know, some criminal organization or with the police, all of a sudden... When they consider that you're dead, your pursuants no longer are trailing you. You don't have to look over your shoulder anymore. You're not worried about anything. You, you've now got a new life. So even, so you would have to admit, even in that scenario, you have to admit, there's a great advantage of now living your life with a clean slate. So now if it is a case of, well, I've, I've, I've now avoided all my gambling debts with the, with, the, with the outfit, the mob, whatever you want to call it. What am I going to do when I see the, the bookies? If I'm smart, I'm going to walk on by, right? 
If I was involved in a life of crime before and the police are no longer looking for me, what am I going to do now? I'm not going to try, you know, when when you see the certain friends you know that got you into that life, you're going to start to avoid them. You would like to think. You'd want to avoid that which you previously got you into trouble. So even within the context of a fake death, we, have, we would acknowledge the advantage of making sound changes to your life. Was you going to blow it? Who's going to believe you died a second time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've learned when it comes to that guy, you know what, I don't believe the ink, you know, what I see there, I'm going to try and still find him. <laughs> now, as Paul tells us, how much more so in the event of Jesus' actual death, which is really our death, which we deserved, which is our death in him, also renders you dead to your former life. There's that comparison that is so powerful. What do you do with that clean slate? What do you do with that resurrected life? If Jesus had actually buried your sin along with him in his death, we also ought to realize the potential we have in living out our new life through his resurrection. This is what verses 1 to 4 point to, and they cover this exact point. Paul sees through his theology an opportunity for the believer to live up to the spirit of the law by grasping this opportunity. That when he says at the end there, we too may live a new life. You see that? We too may live a new life. As seen in verse 4. We too may live a new life. In verses 5 to 7, Paul now makes the link between Christ's death that justifies us with Christ's resurrection and that sanctifies us. Strangely enough, this link is not obvious for one, for, for, you know, for us today. For we more naturally link Christ's resurrection with our future glorification, where we are promised that we would have a new body like his. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 says this. So it will be <coughs> with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown in per- is perishable. It is raised in perishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So we are, we are taught to expect this as being the implications of Christ's resurrection. And, not, and, and as it were, we don't necessarily make that connection to sanctification, which sits right in the middle between our justification our deadness to our old sins, our glorification, which is again that future glory of living in a sinless, um, perfect body. But then our sanctification, how do I live that? Paul makes that connection, that sanctification is also connected to the resurrection. Simply because we can now live genuinely new lives. 
So Paul weaves both sanctification and glorification together into the work of the resurrection. This means that just as Christ has an implication, you know, death has an implication for the believer, so also the resurrection has an implication for us in our own walk. And the same way we don't, again, we've got to kind of lose this whole idea that, in a sense, and again, depending on which kind of branch of theology or doctrines you kind of get to, you don't kind of come to the holy cash register at the end of our lives, as some will imply, and God is now, again, weighing up our good and our bad. The angel is there, you know, you know putting in all of our good and our bad deeds, and somehow, again, in that very Egyptian style, is trying to see whether you tip the scales. In a sense that justification really is a done deal within the context of God has really justified me. I stand here free from sin. Now, literally. And not that I'm waiting for some point in the future when ultimately I can see, and again, as some people will do, take things like, you know, in the name, you know, is my, lamb, my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life or is God crossing it out and then all of a sudden I do something good, oh, um, tip exit that and let me put it back in again. And that's what some people genuinely believe. That somehow that it's, it's, it's tipping and that justification is still in the balance. So just as our sanctification has real links to the resurrection, we really do have an opportunity to live in something that God has given us now. So it is that Christ's resurrection works towards the believer's future glorification by disarming the power of sin over their life so they're able to live a sanctified life. I truly have been set free from slavery to sin. So verse 8 to 10 now. Compound this new reality by stating that just as death has its legal ramifications in this life, so does the death of the old person in the spiritual life. In the flesh, he continues to live the life we have right now, but in the spirit, we are awakened to the kingdom of God. So something genuinely happens. So we genuinely, and in terms of the spirit realm, fall off the radar in terms of sin. Again, to illustrate this is, again, in the, in the, in the world of social media and gaming, it's now like within the spirit realm, a little avatar of you now pops up. You're now in that place. You're now in the kingdom of God. You are now represented there and stand there as one of the multitudes. You are now within the kingdom. And just as that avatar... You know, unlike, you know, in social media, in the games, this avatar really does correspond to your outside life, to the real world. It connects those two worlds together. Whereas, again, as we see within the context of gaming and and social media, it's an escapism because in those realms, you can be whatever you want to be, right? But within the spirit realm, it now is linked to who we are in real life. 
So in this final section of 11 to 14, we are told that we must count ourselves or consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. The caution here is that for the believer to not be deceived by the fact that in the flesh, nothing seems to have changed. In other words, Paul already factors into the fact that you may not feel differently from the point when you now come up out of that water, again, after all the music, again, as the, I guess as the crazy, as the music, when all the music fades, and you go home and you suddenly realise you're still you. And that avatar popping up, that you are now on God's radar, doesn't seem to register to you, that you feel like nothing has changed. He tells you that you now need to make the mental account Count yourself now dead. That that old life truly has finished. You've got to do that. That's why that word count is there. I've now got to make that ground up where reality will not help me. My mind and my understanding of scripture now has to move me forward into that truth. You have not physically died or been gifted with a completely new mind and that thinks entirely in different ways, but that is not necessarily the reality of all believers. Some people genuinely do. And that is not to discount that. It's not to say, well, that all that, you know, all that is all smoke and mirrors. Some people do and some people don't. I've known of people who have been into, again, hard drugs and all of a sudden they come into Christ and they're literally, their whole life turns around and their addiction drops off them like that. And that's a reality too. But for most of us, it doesn't feel that way. So when Paul uses the term count, we must take that as a task in which we must complete which we must complete before we reach the correct evaluation of who we are. Count, therefore, must mean that I regard my former acts of rebellion towards God as no longer part of my new life. I will certainly, it will certainly mean that attitudes and practices that, would have regarded, that I would have regarded as part of my natural makeup are, and, but are contrary to my new identity in Christ are no longer appropriate for me. My old life, all those things that the word teaches us as, as good and faithful believers will come alongside us and say, look, brother, sister, we need to move on from this. You need to change the way that you live your life if you are to reflect this new life that Christ has given you. Those things that excited you, that kept you away from church, that kept you away from that covenant community, that might be something you could still do in your life, but it now needs to be prioritized. It's not longer the goal of my life. All those things we use to distract you, we all have them. We all have our vices. So let's not sit there and, and, and kind of point our finger at the obvious. Easy to speak to point the finger at the drug dealer and the, the drug addict. Easy to point the finger at the alcoholic. But my chocolate obsession is so cool and holy. <laughs> what harm am I doing to anybody? 
And we can think that way, genuinely, can't we? <laughs> My super indulgent spa weekends. My marathon Netflix watching. All those things are vices that keep us from the kingdom and need to be tempered, temperate. Remember, the believer is to be temperate as one of the gifts of the Spirit, right? That we, are allowed, we now gain the power to do things in moderation, even things that are not directly sinful. Everything becomes moderated. So what does living by grace mean? The idea to avoid here is that of adopting sinless perfection. So if I'm no longer, if I've been freed from the slavery of sin, does that now mean I can live the perfect life? So this is what they call the doctrine of sinless perfection. Is that now a reality to me? And I will have to say we need to avoid that because we now live by grace. And the reason why we live by grace is that it helps us to temper our expectations of what we'll be able to accomplish in how we do account. Because the, the human mind don't necessarily work in straight lines. And there are days where this doesn't sync up to us as truthful as other times. With Christ having died for us because of the power of the law over sin, I do, now, do I, I do now obtain the power to live a sinless life. Is not... So this is what people think. Sorry, this is, let me kind of unpack this. So with this notion that Christ has died for me and that that power of sin is now done away with, the belief now is that now I can earn that which... God has given me by grace. And so therefore, when it starts off by grace, I now get the power to live that life and now I become justified because now I'm really living it enough so that God can say he gets a pass mark and then therefore, now I go from grace to law. That's the idea that some people get into their head. That... God saw a little potential in me, like some football scout or some, I don't know, I mean, I'm in some basketball, basketball scout. I see a little potential that he can make it all the way. And so the grace or the fact that I come to your game and I see your potential and then all of a sudden now I'm, I give you that point where I say, now show me what you can do. That's what we believe that God does with us. Show me what you can do. In this example, when he picks us off the court, when he picks us off that place where we are seemingly show a little bit, a little bit of potential, but we're not the finished ultimate, he says, you're already there. You're already in the league. That's the equivalent. Not that I now earn my place to stay there that you're there now. 
There is not this, as it were, previant grace period where I now have to go through workouts, go through various kind of checkouts to see that I meet the grade for the team. So the answer is that it is grace all the way through. When Christ relieves us from the tyranny of sin, he is not enabled us to save ourselves. It is by grace we are justified and by grace we are sanctified and finally by grace we are glorified. Our part in this work of God is to live out in gratitude what God has done for us through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. People underestimate that power of gratitude, you know. And this is something that I know Pastor E. agrees on. I gave him a book on this when I, uh, I, I, about the whole idea of the idea of gratitude in the life of the believer. When you understand this theme and the, and, and the motivation of when you suddenly realize what grace is, what gratitude now brings into our lives is that, wow, we are so overwhelmed with what God does that all of a sudden we are acting in a, in a, in a, in a sense in a way that we can't even believe. Why would he choose me? And it's that gratitude. So the life I live post-justification is by no means a vindication of God saving me because he saw some potential in me. But it's a life lived with the awareness that what he has done for me and the joy that that brings, and the humility that brings, that anchors the soul to his finished work. You know, God lifting up our heads in our darkest moments, which I have to say is true for all of us, right? In our darkest moments, and taking us and putting us into his kingdom, that alone should bring us joy and humility, and say, how can I dishonor this person and you know normally I share that you know that picture of what it is to be a patron when somebody takes you up and adopts you into their kingdom within the Roman system and and how privileges and how you would never dare to dishonor a patron you know if somebody comes and um, in the Roman world and becomes a patron of your business and and all of a sudden so like say you're let's just say you've got a little bakery going on and you're into debt, and um, a Roman citizen comes along who's got a lot of money, comes along and says, um, look, I'm going I'm to prop up your business. I'm going to give you a big loan. I'm going to help you to succeed and, and all the rest of it. Um, here you are. Here's the money. And um, yeah, you don't have to pay me back, but anytime I need a favor, you do it for me. And so that person props you up. And you're now successful and all of a sudden you get a massive order in from some other Roman citizen. So imagine this. And, but then your patron comes in and says, don't fulfill that man's order. He's an enemy of mine. And I don't want 
anybody who is associated with me to prop them up. What do you do? The fact that you acknowledge that this person has helped you out in the past and has obviously you should live in joy and gratitude and humility towards, you will have to say to that person, sorry, I cannot take your order. Uh, my patron is so-and-so and therefore I cannot help you. Here's any deposit you've given back. Bam, I can't do it. That's the life of gratitude. That's the life where, when it comes to the fact that this can actually even financially hurt me because of who I'm aligned with, I cannot help you. That's the idea of patronage that you see within the context of Romans, that they would have grasped. If God is my patron, how can I be involved with anybody who is counter to him? So this Resurrection Sunday can often be, as I've stated, only focused on Christ's victory over sin with little reminder of how we also have benefited from being freed from the power of sin. And this is not to say it's a bad thing. It's good that we sit there and we are happy that Christ is vindicated, is victorious, he has risen. That which people try to label him with, all of our sins, he was vindicated from. That's good. But it doesn't just mean that. His victory is also our victory. Because he's given it to us. And he shared it with us. We should not lose our focus on Christ. As risen and victorious. But when we respond to he is risen. May our own response, he is risen indeed come from a life that is indeed aware that the power of sin has been removed from our own lives, that we're experiencing that as a result of his resurrection. So when we come to this, maybe even when we come next year, that by the grace of God, when we say he is risen indeed, you will experience the fact that I know he's risen because I have not felt the power of sin over my life the same way I have. And so that indeed comes with that knowledge, not just of the historical event because it is written, but because of the currently I'm experiencing my victory over the slavery from sin. It's God. And so I know he is risen because he is living in me. What a glorious experience that would be, wouldn't it? That when we respond, we got, I know he's living because he's living in me. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.